This episode of the Children's Literature Podcast is brought to you by the snowdrops in my garden. Snowdrops. Nature's reminders that dark times eventually come to an end and fresh starts will follow. Welcome to the Children's Literature Podcast. I'm your host, TQ Townsend. This is an interview with Marcia Skripik. This week marks two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. The sad reality of this war is that this isn't the first time that Ukraine has been menaced by its larger, more powerful neighbor. Ninety years ago, Ukrainians were subjected to a genocide at the command of Joseph Stalin, head of the Soviet Union. This was called the Holodomor, during which the land and food of the Ukrainian people was confiscated, and then they were left to starve. It's a terrible, depressing part of world history, but it's important not to forget it. The millions of people who died deserve to be remembered. Author Marcia Skripik wrote a powerful children's novel called Winterkill that's set during the Holodomor, and it tells the story of a young boy whose farming family is torn apart by Soviet policies that were designed to uproot the farming families that had owned and worked Ukrainian land for generations. I was lucky enough to sit down recently for an interview with Marcia about this book. Winterkill is a gripping story and older children and teenagers will be unable to put it down once they start reading. It's a book that'll leave you heartbroken and hopeful and angry and sad all at once. I can't recommend it enough, whether you read it at home or in the classroom, as it manages to capture the broad strokes of a period in history that's not as well known as it should be. At the same time, it's able to stay focused on the personal experiences of the children living through horrifying events. This year on the show, I'm putting extra emphasis on historical fiction for kids, and Winterkill is a book that gets a perfect score from me. It's meticulously researched and beautifully written. It stands among the best historical fiction, which combines high educational value with great artistic merit. During our conversation, Marcia and I mention a few things which I've left linked in the show notes for this episode. I've posted the cover of her book Enough, which is also set during the Holodomor, but is told as a folktale. I also have some pictures of the gorgeous pisanki eggs that Marsha paints. These are traditional Ukrainian eggs that, well, they put the best Easter eggs you've ever seen to shame. I'll put it that way. I also have a link to holodomor.ca, a website with reliable information about the history and impact of the Holodomor. And I have one very slight correction to make. At the end of our conversation, she mentions that her next novel will be published at the end of this year. Book release dates are adjusted all the time for various reasons, and since our conversation, Marsha's new book has been rescheduled to come out in early 2025. And now, here's my interview with Marsha Skripik, author of Winterkill. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Marsha Skripik to the show. Marsha is the author of Winterkill which was published in September 2022. It's a work of historical fiction for children that tells about two kids who get caught up in the events of the Holodomor in Ukraine during the 1930s. Marsha, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Tiffany. It's such a pleasure to be here. Tell me how you're connected to Ukraine. I'm Canadian. My Ukrainian-Canadian father was born in Canada. My grandparents came to Canada before the First World War. And in Canada, Ukrainians were interned as enemy aliens, which a lot of people don't know about. And that had a profound impact on my family because our whole Ukrainianness, once he escaped the internment camp and everything else, it meant that my father uh, hid that he was Ukrainian. He wanted to be, you know, English, basically. And so for me, being the kid of that, uh, the way that I rebelled was to find out more about my Ukrainian heritage. And it just plunged me into a whole pile of stories. Part of Winterkill was inspired by my own grandfather because he actually was a card-carrying communist member. So that led me into this, and it also led me into all my other Ukrainian novels. Many people aren't aware of the Holodomor or have even heard that word. Can you give a brief explanation of what this word means and the events it refers to? Holod means hunger and more is death. So Holodomor means death by hunger. So what Stalin, who was the dictator of the Soviet Union at the time, he had an ethnic cleansing plan targeted against minorities in the Soviet Union, but in particular Ukrainians. And so his plan was to eliminate Ukrainians by starving them to death but also trying to extract as much food as possible in the process so that he could export it, so that he had more money to do an industrialization case program in the Soviet Union called the Five-Year Plan. It's a pretty sad moment in history. It's pretty heavy. Um, When I was reading your book, I couldn't put it down. I read it all in a single evening. I think I stayed up till two in the morning to finish it. And you did such a good job of showing what an insane idea this was, not just from a genocidal standpoint. I mean, the the destruction of human life is horrific, but just how crazy it was to think, oh, let's wipe out all these farmers with this generational knowledge of the land and the farming and of wheat production. And you see how it just destroyed communities and families. So what about that made you go, you know what I need to do? I need to write a book for kids about that. So it's not the first time that I wrote a book for kids about that. The first book that I wrote came out in the year 2020. So it was when Vladimir Putin was just a new dictator. And I think he was called president at that time, not, you know, he wasn't a dictator yet. That book was enough. It's a picture book. I'll show you. I know that nobody else can see it, but this is the Ukrainian edition. Oh, that's got a beautiful cover. For listeners, I will put pictures of these covers on the show notes so you can see them on the website. When this book came out, and basically it was based on a grim fairy tale type thing, it was about one village and how they tricked the dictator into thinking they had died by burying their food in graves because that was what the dictator wanted, was Ukraine to be covered with graves. So, you know, that kind of black humor. When the book came out, I had death threats and hate mail. And I had to have police accompany me when I did public presentations. Now, you'd think that that would be a reason to never write about it again. More than a decade later, after my popularity because of books like Making Bombs for Hitler, and I have a a six-book World War II set of books that had been published by Scholastic. And uh, so Scholastic actually came to me 
and said, you know, it is time to write a novel about this because this is a pretty big um, incident in 20th century history. And we would like to publish a book that you write on this topic. So I knew that I would have a lot of support. And so that's why I decided I, I did have to go there. Um, it's emotionally harrowing to write a book like Winter Kill. But the thing is, is that because I've written a lot of books for young people, and I consider myself to be 12 years old inside. I know that there's a certain way to do it so that you're not using somebody's suffering for someone else's pleasure. Good children's literature, I think, plunges someone into what it feels like to experience this kind of discrimination on a major level, but not get pleasure out of someone's pain, which I think a lot of adult fiction does. That's how I approached it. And I was really honored that Scholastic, which is one of the biggest publishers in the world, wanted to support me in that. You gathered a lot of information for this world, you know, from your personal life and your research, but specifically about the two main characters. So there's this boy who, is his name pronounced Neil? Neil. Okay. And he's he's named after my son, Neil. (laughs) Okay, there you go. So you have Neil, who is, he's a Ukrainian boy, grew up in Ukraine, born there. And then you have Alice, who is Canadian, but comes to the USSR, because I think that's another fact that a lot of people don't know is that in the early years before it was really obvious how ugly things were getting, there were Westerners who thought, oh, come to the worker's paradise. We'll live in this absolutely wonderful land where everyone will be equal. I mean, it sounds great, but where did you get the inspiration for their personalities and their characters and and their little mannerisms? Alice was a real person, as you know, because the afterword of the book explains that. And she was a Canadian whose father worked at Massey Harris, which is interesting because I'm from Brantford, Ontario, and we had Massey Harris here as well. So it was just sort of like it was calling to me. But her personality is really mine. The first time that I voted in a federal election in Canada, I voted for the Communist Party of Canada. And, you know, the thing about communism, it sounds really good on paper, but then when it's enacted, it seems to involve killing whole groups of people, right? And dictators putting themselves into place for decades on end. But being an idealistic person, I didn't know that. And so she was the inspiration. And I really bared my soul because I know that if I had been my grandfather's daughter instead of his granddaughter... He had also been a card-carrying communist member. He was buried as Comrade Forchuk, and he applied to go to the Soviet Union at that time. Now, not to help with Stalin's five-year plan, he had his own plan, which was to find the rest of his family, because they had been, you know, um, plunged into that tumultuous time, and he was just trying to find his mother and his sister. But I could just imagine Alice, because she basically is me. And I think that we all need to admit that we could do horrible things, just being idealistic. And we have to acknowledge that in ourselves, that we're all capable of doing horrible things if we don't think it through. I think that's best shown in the way when she first appears in the book with her little clipboard. She's so pleased. She has this nice little uniform and she gets to go with her dad and go around and make an inventory. And I was imagining when I read that moment, I thought, gosh, my daughter would do that. I thought, well, if she had a cool new uniform with a little red sash around her shoulders. And then I said, oh, do you want to come and help me with this important thing and, you know, do everything with your clipboard? She'd be very excited. 
it's a lot to expect a child to stop and think, oh, what am I actually inventorying? Because in this scene, she's taking stock of everything that's in this family's home so that it can be stolen and plundered from their family, right? Or outright destroyed if it doesn't meet Mr. Stalin's ideal of what good Soviet citizens should have. And that's, that is the thing is when you especially read Alice, you can just see, gosh, that could be me. And watching her process of awakening is, it's painful and hopeful at the same time. She just, she's a wonderful character and I loved her. That isn't really a question, but I just had to let you know that. Oh, thank you. And actually in the first draft of the book, it was quite different because in the what I thought was the final draft of the book, I had alternating chapters between Alice and Neil. I work with a number of editors. And so my first editor, you know, she thought that this was good. And then it went to the next editor and she said, the way that you have it, Alice just sounds really cold. Because like when you hear her, when she's that idealistic person from her own thoughts, you know, with that clipboard, oh my goodness, she does not sound like a pleasant person. And um, and I, I felt offended because I said to my longtime editor, I said, but she's me. Are you saying you don't like me? So she made me rewrite half of the chapters and have it all out of Neil's perspective. And it changed it. I was so grateful that she gave me that advice. And so, you know, the thing is, is I've had, I don't know, 25, 27 books published, and I still need that kind of major edit sometimes. It really made the book better because when you see her from Neil's perspective, she has more of an opportunity to grow than if you saw her through her own. But, you know, the other thing is, is Hitler youth, like the young pioneers, the Soviet young pioneers, they're the same thing. And what's happening in Russia right now is the same. They brought back the the young pioneers. They're calling it something different. And they're all being propagandized. And of course, they're stealing Ukrainian kids, right? They're saying that they're saving orphans. And that's what happens when you kill the parents. Then they become orphans. And Putin says that he's taken 700,000 Ukrainian children and rescued them. And they are also being propagandized into this. And so, you know, they're being groomed to go back into Ukraine and kill their families, right? Well, and I think that's why it's important to learn about the past, because if you don't, how can you stop it from repeating or at least be aware when it's repeating? Yes, and that's a problem with the Holodomor, is that it was a genocide that was successfully suppressed from the public. My next question has to do with that, which is that writing historical fiction is difficult And one big problem writers are going to have, even if they have the best intentions, is that not all records are available. It's not actually possible to fully reconstruct history. This problem is especially compounded if you're dealing with anything from the Soviet Union, because, you know, it was literal actual 1984 with all records falsified or destroyed. So what sources were you able to rely on to create this fictional account? And maybe where were any gaps that you just couldn't fill and had to use your imagination? It was surprising how much I could get. Now, I do have my master's degree in library science. I consider myself a librarian detective. And this is a topic that um, I've been working on for decades. So this this helps. But I used first-person accounts of uh, Westerners who went to the Soviet Union and then came back and wrote their diaries. So there were engineers. There, there was an American engineer that went and helped design the Kharkiv Tractor Factory, for example, there's people from Ford Motor Company that went and then wrote what they saw. They would write day to day what happened. 
there was um, this man, uh, an American, his name was Fred Beale. He was a card-carrying communist, too. Actually, this is really high up in the Communist Party of America. And he went over as a true believer and uh, was quickly woken to what was really going on there. But he gave really good descriptions of what was happening, really good descriptions, even when, you know, Neil and his younger brother Slauko walk home, like, you know, from the tractor factory, then to home, the road was part of the description from that book. So personal memoir of someone who walked that road. So that helped a lot. There are also diplomats who were on the ground and wrote diplomatic letters back. There was also one who actually took a single engine plane ride over the famine area. Also, Ray Kleiman, who is uh, a walk-in character and a real person, she honestly reported on what was happening in the whole of Demore. Her newspaper articles, and also uh, Welsh reporter Gareth Jones, he uh, reported what he saw. So I didn't rely on things from official accounts because the official accounts was that it didn't happen. But I did have all these Westerners, and of course, because I had Western characters in this, that helped. But there are also uh, memoirs. And so I read memoirs and first-person accounts of people who survived, and also Westerners who, who saw and didn't really understand what they were seeing. So between those two things, I also was able to get a, a map of Kharkiv at the time which helped because a lot of the scenes, you know, there's street urchins in Kharkiv. And so it just helped that way. There was also a really good diary, and it was a propaganda diary. And you'd take a lot of things with a grain of salt. It was written by a British woman. It was called I Married a Russian. And so it was this woman who was a card-carrying communist herself, as was her husband. Um, and he was a scientist, and they were very wealthy. And they were the, the upper echelon of the Communist Party. And she was situated in Kharkiv, and she'd talk about how frustrating it was to go out for an ice cream and have to, like, there were all these, you know, dirty Ukrainians on the streets. She didn't say that they were dying, but if you knew the context, you knew exactly what it was. And she was just, you know, all these homeless people, what are they doing? Can't they find a job sort of thing? And she was just indignant about the whole thing. And so her memoir was useful in ways that she would never have dreamed Sounds like maybe you need to write a nonfiction book about all this, too. <laughs> there are a lot of uh, really good nonfiction books about it. And one that I would recommend is Anne Applebaum's Red Famine. It is the best book on this subject. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes as well. It sounds like we're all going to get some fun extra reading out of this interview. I wanted to wrap up with something a little more happy. You put these pictures of these beautiful, are they called Pisanki? Is that, did I say that right? Pisankia, but I pronounce things wrong all the time. <laughs> okay. Well, they're these eggs. They're these beautiful traditional Ukrainian eggs that have been painted with these very elaborate designs. How did you learn to make those? And where do you get the inspiration for all your eggs? So um, uh, Pisankia, the, the translation of that is written eggs. So Pisati means to write. And uh, so you apply with the batik method. Uh, wax, and then you put the colors on backwards, you know, you soak in one color, then cover up and do that. And so because I wasn't raised Ukrainian, I had to learn how to do it on my own. And I just kept on trying to find, you know, women in uh, bazaars, church bazaars who were selling them. And 
I'd sit beside them and they'd show me part of it. And so as a teenager, I finally learned how to do it. And I made my own Kistka, which is like the fountain pen. And the designs are, are my own, but they're based on traditional ones. Because when I start an egg, I wait for the egg to tell me what it wants to be. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but it's also the way that I write. In the spring is when I try to carve out enough time from my writing time uh, to do some pisankia and wait to see what they call for. And so I also try to take a picture of every unique design that I do and post it on my website because sometimes I'll make two or three of them and then go on to something else. And it's sort of like the back of my mind is telling me something I need to work on. And all the symbols are, you know, they are symbols. So it's like the the egg is writing a story. Oh, that's really nice. That makes me appreciate them even more. I'll make sure I put another link so that listeners can see those because they really, really are beautiful. And you can tell so much love goes into the creation of each one. I could see where doing something like that um, could be very meditative in quality. Like I enjoy things like embroidery and crochet and gardening, you know, like for clearing my brain and relaxing and focusing. And I, I know what you mean when when you say you have to see what it says to you, because it it's sort of the same way when I'm like maybe looking at my flower bed and thinking, what am I going to plant here? And what am I going to plant there? You just, you stand back, you look, you look at the dirt, the way it's shaped. And so in different artistic mediums or different means of expressing yourself, I think it's helpful to stand back and go, well, not necessarily what do I want, but what does the situation say? What, what needs to happen here that maybe I should pay attention to? Because it teaches you that not everything needs to come from you and it doesn't have to be about your ego and your pure creation that you need to get things from outside. It's sort of like what you said before about having a good editor, someone who can stand back a little farther than you will see things that you're not going to. So what are you going to publish next? I'm working on a trilogy for Scholastic set in the current war. It's pretty hard to write about a war that's happening but it's also really important. There's a lot of Russian disinformation going on and it can fill, you know, the space. And so that was one of the reasons that I just felt that um, I have a readership, young people who want to read about war and about 20th century war also want to read about this. And I've had so many letters about that. So the series is called Kidnapped from Ukraine. And let me tell you the names of the books. I it's hard for me to remember because like the publisher came up with the names. And so the first one is under attack. And the second one is standoff. And the third is still alive under attacks coming out this fall. And uh, I'm, I'm working on um, standoff right now. Be sure to keep in touch. Cause I'd love to talk to you about those books when they're ready to go. Where can listeners Thanks. find you online? So my website is Kala.com, just C-A-L-L-A dot C-O-M. And if you just spell my last name, Skripik, and you'll see every place that I come up. This is the beauty of having a really hard to pronounce and spell word is that there aren't too many of us out there. And I think they're all related to me, the ones that you would find. But um, it's really easy. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Blue Sky Goodreads. I'm trying to get off X, but I keep on going back. You know, it's sort of like having a rotten tooth and you keep on poking at it. But that's where I am. Marcia Skripik, thanks so much for talking to me today. It was a pleasure, Tiffany. 
You've been listening to the Children's Literature Podcast. Please subscribe and give the show a rating. Send comments to letters at childrensliteraturepodcast.com. I'm your host, TQ Townsend. Thanks for listening.